Thank you, as always, for downloading The Tully Show. Just a quick reminder, if you like the weekly Tully Show, there's more of everything you like about this show at my Patreon, patreon.com slash Mike Tully ridiculous news headlines listener q a's horrible movie hangs all sorts of music oriented podcasts everything the tully show is just more of it at this point i'm up to like 30 patreon exclusive podcasts 30 three zero join me over there see what you've been missing patreon.com slash mike tully okay you ready to start this show Coming to you live on tape during week 48 of quarantine from my nine-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a dazzling view of the smog-shrouded urban sprawl of the city of Angels. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, an anthropologist and author whose latest book is entitled Work, A History of How We Spend Our Time. Hello and welcome, James Suzman. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you for having me. And we should we should say that the U.S. edition of the book has a different title. Does it? And yeah, it does. It's a history. It's called It's Work, A Deep History from the Stone okay. Age to the Age of Robots. Interesting. Now, that's sort of changes the timber of the expectations one might go into the <laughs> yeah. book with you seem like you yeah. that that had occurred to you as well that almost yeah. seems like it maybe wasn't your decision to change the subtitle yeah. of the book yeah it, it, <laughs> it most certainly was not i see um yeah this is the it's the way of publishing i fear is they 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 think america and britain need different versions and then i've got different versions for all the other countries too I see. Okay. Well, we'll see if we have time to squeeze in the robots as well. Uh, I brought I brought your book up recently on uh, another podcast that I do yep. in sharing something that my a story that my father has told me. My father, who is in his eighties, would tell me when I was younger about articles he was reading. I'm going to guess in the sixties or the seventies that would have been in you know Time or Newsweek or you know things for a general readership, asking the question, "What are we all going to do with all of our time?" when we have so much extra time once computers are doing everything for us. And the thing that's crazy about that, it's not unusual for you know people to prognosticate about the future and to be wildly off. But what's striking about that to me is that the computers and the technology have more than delivered on the promise of, of what was supposed to happen, what they were supposed to do, the labor-saving advantages they were supposed to deliver. And yet we work more than we used to. We went from having two income families by choice, having that option, to sometimes uh, very often families who have no choice but to have two incomes. Wages have stagnated. And across the developed world, indexes that measure our mental, emotional, and physical health have been flat, if not regressed, even though we have had more work on the part of humankind and all of this additional work delivered by um, the technology. And you've noticed that as well. And you feel like it does not need to be this way. And perhaps there's an opportunity for it to not be this way in the future. Yes. I, to, to put it simply, I think where the technology has succeeded, we have failed. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, partially human history, it goes back an awful long way, but it is ultimately a story of adaptation. It's a story of change. It's a story of how we shift and reorganize ourselves according to different climatic circumstances and uh, different ways of organizing what we need to do. And what we haven't done is managed to change the way we work in accordance with the extraordinary surge in productivity we've had as a result of not just computerization, but going back even further to the machine age and automation. You know, just simply the idea of you know, being able to extrapolate huge, or extract, I should say, huge amounts of energy from fossil fuels and turn that into work and turn that into stuff done by machines. We just simply haven't adapted to it. And so we're stuck working in a sense as if we were still in the agricultural era and we have this whole cultural mindset that we've brought with us, yet we're in an entirely different era. And, you know, this, of course, would be fine, but the problem is, is that actually working the way we do and consuming energy the way we do, it actually has consequences. It's, you know, we're risking cannibalizing our own future. Um, and so it's, 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 it's a big thing. I think we're at a very extraordinary moment in human history. And the challenge for us is whether we adapt. Um, and to use a horrible old slogan from South Africa during the apartheid era, it's adapt or die. You know, it's we, we, we need to start organizing our lives in terms of what is in front of us, not rather um, than what was behind us. So your book walks us through the entire history of humankind's working lives, indeed begins even before the rise of, of humankind. Is it too gross of an oversimplification to say that you think it's possible that the last 10,000 years plus of human history could ultimately be a blip on our radar, an aberration? where we could potentially return to the relative Eden of the hunter-gatherer period, even though most of us nowadays do not think of the hunter-gatherer era as Edenic in any way, shape, or form. Well, you know, look, a blip, a blip is only, you know, it's, it's all a question of perspective and scale. And certainly when you take, you know, our species' long history, and our species' history is much longer than it was even when I started doing my undergraduate anthropology work. When I started as an undergraduate anthropologist, people were saying, well, maybe Homo sapiens have been around and been clever for 40,000, 50,000 years max. Um, now we know through genetic work and genomic, um, basically unpeeling human genomes, and through a whole series of new archaeological discoveries, that our species has been around at least 300,000 years which is an extraordinary period of time. And we also know that it's only in the last 10,000 years that we've been working the way we have. And so you put that in that scale, you're right. This is just a mere sliver of recent history. It's the last, you know, one and a half, two percent. Um, and so from that perspective, this might well be shown to be a blip. But I think in a sense, thinking of it merely as a blip is to partially diminish the scale of the moment we're in because the kind of abundance that we're about to enjoy or we're capable of enjoying now is very different to that which our hunter-gatherer ancestors enjoyed. And their abundance was, in a sense, based on a kind of humility of desires and wants, whereas ours is based on this really unprecedented material wealth and this extraordinary productivity. Um, and in some ways, you know, and this is certainly what my hunter-gatherer friends would say, They'd say you you Westerners need to learn to appreciate you know the extraordinary wealth that you've got. 
Well, right. There's a quote in the book, I forget to whom it's attributed, that there's two different ways you can really be happy. You can either want very much and figure out a way to get it, or you can just not want very much. You talk about the hunter-gatherer lifestyle in terms of nature being um, a socialist, a communist supermarket. When you're well, hungry, you go yes. and pick something. In, in a sense. I mean, this is the sort of the wonderful thing about, you know, hunter-gatherers. You know, they remind us of how differently people engage with the world for such a long period of time. And the guys I worked with, the Zhenglasi Bushmen of the Kalahari Desert in Namibia and Botswana, and they're just one of several Bushmen populations there. Um, you know, they lived in a pretty tough neighborhood by any standards. You know, the Kalahari Desert is the kind of place where I can drop, you know, drop an average person or even an average, I imagine, survivalist. And you'll drop them there and they'll be finished in three or four days. That'll, they'll starve to death or not find water. But for Zhenglasi and hunter-gatherers who know the environment, know the landscape, know the animals, actually it's a relatively easy place to live. And so in this desert place, this place where normal people, you and I, would starve to death, or not me, I should say, I, but I've learned my way around now, but they get by on effectively feeding themselves on, historically, um, 15 to 17 hours a week. And that's just healthy, active adults. You know, and that's supporting kids, that's supporting older people. And they do that through mainly gathering wild fruits, which takes a lot of skill to find in tubers, and also through hunting, um, which, again, takes a great deal of skill. And they use very small poison bows and arrows. And, um, but they effectively meet all their basic needs on the basis of a very limited amount of work week. So they spend the rest of the time, they choose to spend the rest of the time, um, socializing, relaxing a great deal, and doing what you'd call other forms of work, work which is pleasure. So they make stuff, they do art, they, um, you know, and then they also do the other stuff, which people like to do in their free time. They, you know, young men flirt with young ladies and, you know, try and sneak off in the bush and so on and so forth. Um, but basically what they have is they have a kind of affluence based on having limited wants that are easily met easily satisfied and that contrasts very much with our particular mindset which is really this mindset of continuous aspiration and having in a sense what economics would tell us and what classical economic econo economics says is we have infinite wants and limited means so we're always striving to have something more than we have having enough food today is simply a trigger to begin working to get food for tomorrow or the next day Whereas for the hunter-gatherers like the Zhenglasi, having enough food for today was a trigger to relax, take it easy, and enjoy themselves. I don't want to, I'm sure it's wrong to conflate today's less developed world with prehistoric hunter-gatherers, but I'm trying to relate to this as best I can. I have had the experience, I'm sure you've had the experience, many people have had the experience of going on a vacation, perhaps, somewhere that's less developed, and you say... I'm seeing local people there who have far less than most people that I know have who could never really even realistically aspire to have a, 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 a median standard of living for the country that I live in. And yet they seem happy. They seem content. And the question that emerges and the question that we all ask ourselves when we go on vacation to a, a Bali or a Belize or whatever is why do we choose to make life objectively harder for ourselves when there is little apparent benefit? If you're, if, if the ultimate goal is happiness and contentedness, eudaimonia, whatever you want to call it, we know we're barking up the wrong tree. So I guess the, the question your book tries to answer is, so why, why do we do that? 
Yeah, it's it's. I mean, the, for for me, it's a sort of fairly obvious problem. And as you say, I mean, when you go and visit places like Belize or. You know, I mean, if I was to take the Zunwasi to Belize, they'd consider them to be, you know, unbelievably materialistic and, right, <laughs> right. you know. But there, there was this extraordinary thing. I mean, when I started working with the Zunwasi, I mean, let's put, you know, to put it in historical perspective, they'd begun to have their land ripped away from them in a very brutal way. Um, and they, many of them had been forced into, you know, what is something very close to resembling slave labor. They had a really tough time of things. And yet they dealt with it with a degree of stoicism that, you know, you I probably wouldn't really manage. And as you say, in a sense, there there was this kind of, you know, one anthropologist referred to it, a guy called Marshall Silence, who um, wrote a famous book called Stone Age Economics. He called it, you know, a reminiscent of the sort of Zen path to affluence. It's really by desiring little, you hold yourself hostage to fewer things. And I think for a lot of us in the West, we're continuously hostage to a whole series of ambitions which are shaped by seeing what the guy next door has or seeing what somebody we aspire to. So we have all these gold-plated symbols we aspire to. And I think for a lot of us, it actually brings us a great deal, a great deal of misery. And we also end up spending all our lives working, really, for, I mean, most people go to work mainly so that they can fund a, a retirement that will happen in 20 or 30 years' time. Um, and it's a, it's a sort of an extraordinary sort of lack of presentness that we have. Um, and it's very highlighted with hunter-gatherers. And to what do you attribute the the lack of jealousy? Jealousy is what you're getting at. Now, I've read one of these factoids. I have no idea if it's if it's true that supposedly if you survey people and say, um, if I gave you a million dollars, but I gave all of your neighbors two million dollars, or you could all get nothing, most people would prefer to be relatively equal to their neighbors rather than objectively mm. richer, but objectively poorer in regard to their... I mean, there are things, there are resources, there's always the, 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 the more pretty girl and the less pretty girl. How, why, in your experience, because you have intimate extended um, uh, experience with hunter-gatherers, is that not the same issue for them? Because we think of it here as this is a fundamental issue of human nature, and you're saying, no, that's not, it doesn't have to be human nature. Well, I, funnily enough, jealousy is a kind of big thing in hunter-gatherer life, but jealousy mm -hmm. is a very different effect in their lives. Um, you know, if we take, for example, I mean, let's use, you know, American pot politics is a hotbed these days, but let's use the sort of libertarian narrative of freedom. You know, everybody's highly individualistic. And at the moment, that libertarian narrative sort of all aligns with this idea of hierarchy. It, it produces really it's quite a right wing vision. Um, in hunter gatherer societies, the Zhuangzi, for example, had absolutely no leaders no government institutions, no judicial structures, no inherited roles. So, for example, somebody couldn't be born a chief or even achieve a chieftainship with certain rights. And it was a society which was highly, fiercely individualistic. And the net outcome of this was a society which was also fiercely egalitarian. So for them, the best way to deal with everybody's individual ambitions was to effectively level it out. And there had a whole bunch of institutions which were aimed at effectively leveling out people's aspirations. So people, for example, who were the best hunters when they came back to the camp with, you know, if they killed a big giraffe, um, you know, instead of being praised, oh, you're the most fantastic hunter. Everybody loved meat and everybody really appreciated it. Meat's the main 
thing that, but very consciously people would insult the hunter. Ah, this is a rubbish giraffe. This giraffe couldn't feed my mother-in-law. Oh, look at it. It's just a big bag of bones. And, and it's called insulting the meat. And the idea is what they say is this is to cool young men's hearts so that they don't start thinking of themselves as more important than anybody else. And if people start thinking of themselves as more important, then you lose that egalitarian, you lose that individualism because you suddenly become subject to somebody else's power and will. So these highly individualistic people actually ended up having a society which was extremely flat. And what they could do as well was effectively tax one another through a system called demand sharing. So when you or I, and in pretty much almost all agricultural societies, it's in the it's in the power of the giver to offer something to somebody. And then you always expect somebody to say something like, um, I'm in your debt if you give me something. I have, I'm in your gratitude. I owe you. In hunter-gatherer societies, they had a system called demand sharing, where effectively it was in the right of the, it was in the power of the asker to demand something. So somebody would come up to you and say, I want some of your tobacco. And you would have to give that tobacco. It would be considered incredibly rude to refuse it to them. And so it was this complete inversion. But effectively what it meant was resources were spread very evenly through the society. It meant that because everybody could tax everybody else, everybody kind of ended up getting the same. And because people knew to expect it, they'd always give out. So when, you know, you got something great in, like again, a bag of tobaccos, what people really like, it would be shared out handful to handful spontaneously because they knew somebody would just demand. So it was done in front. So people ended up having and ended up producing a very different kind of outcomes. And they justified this on the basis of jealousy. They said, when somebody has more than we do, we're jealous of them, and that's why we ask. And then they give it to us, and then it makes everything fine, and it makes everything peaceful, and it creates a harmonious society. So in a sense, there is jealousy. It just had a different way of manifesting. Is that, I don't know how you would test this but is that scalable it seems like the sort of thing that works when everybody sort of knows everybody and everybody is somebody's neighbor or somebody's cousin's cousin or something like that with the rise of agriculture you have the rise of towns and then cities and then all of a sudden you have these people over there you know a big problem in our in every society nowadays is we're talking about these people and we don't know yes. those we don't know those people at, at all is is the sort of system you're talking about scalable would you guess well, it's an, look, this is, it's an interesting question. And in a sense, this is really the heart of what the book is about. It's to say that effectively you had this kind of way of organizing things up until the agricultural revolution, which happened fairly inadvertently. Then agriculture, you had this real scarcity introduced, which flipped everything on its head. It made, you know, it introduced real risks and, you know, much larger scale societal risks. But now we're in this period where we do have this extraordinary material abundance. And the question for me is whether we can return to something like that again. And, you know, it's obviously not just a question that's pertinent to me. I mean, in many ways, in many of certainly mainstream democracies, this is the kind of key fault line in many societies. This is the fault line between effectively a system which is, you know, I suppose, again, I never really understand when I read American news reports on when people say what socialism is. You know, for me, I think of Denmark, you know, where basically people have good jobs and pay a lot of tax, but it's all, it all works very well rather than any kind of communist, communist ideal. And, uh, 
you know, but this is this is the dynamic of the debate at the moment is to what extent do we share our wealth and um, to what extent do we squirrel it away? Now, the reason we squirrel it away is because we had this, you know, the, the embrace of agriculture introduced us to material scarcity in a way that we hadn't before, where hunter-gatherers were able to, you know, they depended on, like the Zhenglasi, they depended on 120 or 30 different plants and animal species to survive, which meant that if there was a drought one year or a flood another year, or there are very few floods there, but it meant that they, they could capitalize on however the environment adapted to changing circumstances. So, you know, some plants responded very well when it was dry and produced fruits. Other plants responded very well when it was wet. There's always something there. But when we became farmers, we effectively put all our eggs in one basket. We hedged our bets behind one or two high-yielding crops. And our job as farmers was primarily to mimic the ideal conditions for those crops to thrive. And when they thrived, they produced a huge amount of energy. You know, so we're talking early wheat and maize and so on. And our populations grew very quickly. But the problem was that, you know, one or two bad years and the whole system crashes. And so scarcity became this massive preoccupation in agricultural societies where everybody was focused on um, effectively you had to work to ensure that you had enough food to sustain you through the agricultural cycle and then sustain you in case something bad happened in future. And the list of risks was huge. It was, you know, if I use, again, my Namibian example, next to the Zhenglasi, where I stayed, you know, there were Kavango farmers to the northeast. And, you know, the amount of times I had to go and help out with people who lost an entire year's harvest because of elephants breaking into their field. You know, and it takes one night. An elephant takes an entire year's worth of grain. And so this is a very real vulnerability. And that's what shaped um, the agricultural agricultural mind, in a sense. And that is really the attitude to accumulation and things that we have inherited. I mean, all our economic institutions and ideas about growth, um, ideas about profit, ideas about even the language we use, like capital, um, and the fact that capital generates a yield, you know, capital is really, it's, you know, it has its root in basically sort of Latin for cattle. Um, capital's head, you know, when we talk about a sort of a herd of cattle, we talk about head. So it's got all these, you know, all of that stuff comes really from our agricultural past. Um, and now I think we have an opportunity to to shift, to to move on. And perhaps when we move on we might do well to look at our hunter-gatherer past you bring up a uh a, a, a quote and but this is most likely what informed this article that my dad read that he was telling me about years later from the economist um john maynard Keynes. that uh, Keynes believed that there was this threshold that we could and indeed would pass economically is, is this the, am i getting this right Absolutely. that we we needed to get to a certain level to feel comfortable for the present and perhaps for the future, and that once we got there, well, of course we would take our foot off the gas. Is that the assumption that he had? And, and we, we've blown past that, and yet we, there is no inclination whatsoever. Indeed, we're told to freak out any time our annual growth is below, say, 3%. Yes. This is, well, I think the way you said that, the, we're told to. I mean, again, yeah. culture is a very powerful force. But yeah, you're right. Let's go back to the Keynes thing. I mean, so mm -hmm. 
Keynes wrote this essay in 1930. And in 1930, actually, he'd just lost most of his own personal fortune, which was pretty considerable, had been wiped out in the stock market crash of 1929, which subsequently led to the Great Depression. And that stock market crash in 1929, when people described it and the Great Depression, how they diagnosed it was they said, actually, this was a problem of society, uh, firstly, overproducing goods. So they had deflation. This is why there's this in mainstream economics, there's a pathological fear of deflation, even though in none of our lifetimes we've ever encountered deflation. But there was effectively, they said, an oversupply of goods and an oversupply of labor. In other words, everybody's needs were being met too easily. And that's partially what persuaded Keynes to think, well, this is a kind of blip. And he described it as the growing pains of this economy on the route to what he called an economic utopia. And in this famous essay he wrote in 1930 called The Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, he predicted that by 2030, courtesy of capital growth, courtesy of improvements in productivity, and courtesy of changes in technology, nobody would be working more than 15 hours a week. Now, the 15 hours a week and the 2030 was actually a bit of a thumb suck on his part. He just said, supposing we have a growth rate commensurate with what they had back then. Um, the truth is we passed his thresholds in 1980, and he didn't even come close to predicting the digital revolution um, and the whole scale of that. And yet, as you say, we continue to work much harder than well, we don't work much harder than anybody, but we continue, you know, work remains this absolute thing we fetishize and fixate on. Um, and for me, the question is, is, you know, how do we how do we change that? And I think it's a question of really recognizing that this is a cultural thing. This is the value of understanding our hunter-gatherer past is that in the 1930s and 40s, people said we are, it's in our nature to be acquisitive. You know, it is in our nature, the economists will tell you, it's in our nature to have infinite desires and limited means. And their argument for that is that we evolved this because our hunter-gatherer ancestors had such a miserable time and starved the whole time that they were obsessed with hoarding stuff. And it's just hardwired into us because of that. But now we know that our hunter-gatherer ancestors weren't like that at all. So it suggests that this sort of basic idea of what we are, that our economies are organized around, this assumption that we're like this irrepressibly demanding, greedy species, um, is not part of human nature, but it's part of our culture. And if it's part of our culture, it means it's something that we can change. And, you know, on the whole, and again, as an anthropologist, you know, culture manifests in many different ways, and I don't advocate changing anything unless that thing is causing us problems. Um, and there is a indication now that our acquisitiveness, our desire to have more than we have, ultimately risks cannibalizing our future now. So how would this change begin to happen? I, humankind may have chosen to go from, say, spending 15 hours per week on labor and, uh, you know, getting food and 15 hours per week on all of our other chores. I did not personally choose to work 40 <laughs> plus hours per week and spend an yeah. additional 40 plus hours a week on uh, on uh, and no, on chores, etc. Nor did anybody who's listening to this. So what power do we have to begin to enact the sort of change for which you advocate? Well, again, this is sort of a, it's it's a question of how culture reproduces itself. Mm -hmm. What we have, and we live in a we live in an era which is a, you know unprecedented in many ways. 
But one of the ways that is most unprecedented um, is our ability to access and make use of basically decent knowledge. Now, we live in an era where there's an awful lot of rubbish knowledge flapping around or pretending, disguising itself as knowledge. In the, but there is, you know, we, we are in a position in history where we are far better able to read the future than at any time in the past. Humans have always been obsessed with the future. You've had soothsayers and oracles and all sorts of things, you know, all through history. Um, you know, people have turned to, you know, theological texts and so on or to predict the future. But of course, those predictions have always been nonsense. It's sort of like, you know, red sky in the morning, oh, it means it's going to be stormy in the evening. It's, it's, you know, but the truth is now, actually, we do have this extraordinary ability to be able to model out using, in particular, complex computer simulations, to model out scenarios for our future, to understand the impacts of our action. So for once, we're actually able to do things in advance of them actually happening. And that incurred that, Sort of puts on us a, a degree of responsibility, which I think no generation has ever had before. And I think the first sense of that responsibility probably came about in 1945, after that first nuclear bomb dropped, when people were like, holy crap, you know, we have to organize ourselves so that we don't end up throwing these things all over the place. And now we're at a point where we can begin to understand the consequences of other kinds of actions. So again, the environment is really the easy and obvious space to do it, but as as well as pandemic awareness. Um, you know, so environment, we know that basically, you know, our carbon usage is producing ocean acidification and so on and so forth and um, melting the polar caps. We know about the biodiversity. So we likewise know, for example, that in terms of epidemiology and diseases, that intensive farming was the area that everybody thought the next pandemic would come from rather than bats. But we know that there's a huge risk associated with the scale of intensive farming that we're doing, in particular with birds and pigs, which produce flus. We also know that the huge levels of using, in particular, antibiotics in the agricultural industry is effectively diminishing the effectiveness of antibiotics for us because it's producing highly resistant strains of the various bacterial pathogens that do it. So we have this understanding of the consequences of our action. And what it requires is developing a kind of cultural model and a way of engaging with it that we act on that knowledge. And I think that is something that does organically happen. Um, but I think it's also something that people are very hesitant to engage with or that a lot of people are. Um, and so one always has to deal with a great deal of resistance to it. But there is this debate at the moment, in particular with the pandemic, about listening to the science. And what does the science mean? Well, science's answer is almost always to say, we are uncertain and this is our best bet at the moment. And it tells you to basically distrust certainty <laughs> in any way, shape or form, but go on the balance of probabilities. And I think that's where you know, I, th I think we're at a really interesting point in our history with that. And, you know, one hopes that if there's silver lining comes out of this horrible pandemic, then it's something like that. It's this kind of realization that we do have this extraordinary capacity. We do have this extraordinary wealth. We do have this ability to do things. And all we have to do is learn to do it. And and I say this with some knowledge because I'm, a, you know, it's only this year with the pandemic that I actually managed to give up smoking after years of living with Jean Croissy, who loved that tobacco so much. You know, and we are a species that knowingly people will smoke and continue to do things that are bad for themselves. Um, and 
you know, we know it's bad for us, but yet we still do that because we're creatures of habit. So partially it's about sort of doing this, you know, we've got to give up, collectively give up smoking. And I, I, I'd certainly, I, I'm sure it's within our capabilities of doing that. Um, but people just have to have that sense of understanding that it is possible, I think. Your book is uh, about the past, present, and also the future of human work, human labor, um, and, and the world that we need to adapt to is not just our current world, but the world that you believe, you know, well, there is a world to come. <laughs> you, you know, you think that you have some sense of what that world is likely to look like. I'm still having a lot of trouble wrapping my brain around some basic assumptions about the world that other people who talk about and study the future, to the extent that the future can be studied, um, seem to have arrived at as a sort of a dogma. So we had the revolution of agriculture, and then there's the waves of the industrial revolution. And we're told that the coming wave and waves could be far more transformative than the ones that have preceded them. Just in concrete terms, what are you talking about? What are we likely looking at? What does artificial intelligence mean for my life or my child's life in your best estimation? Well, look, in, 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 I'm cautious about saying exactly what the future is going to look of course. like. Um, what I certainly think is that the, you know, the critical scale of change that we've experienced in, I suppose, our recent lifetimes is really the shift from this kind of, you know, visceral scarcity to a degree of abundance, to a degree where we can, for example, you know, the world would probably be better off if we all did work that we loved, <laughs> you know, as people tend to be better at. You know, the, the, there's one statistic which I always find really interesting, and it's up until 1750, 1800, Pretty much globally, you're looking at nine out of 10 people lived in rural areas and nine out of 10 people worked in food production. And most of that energy that they produced in food went into keeping their bodies alive and well, and they still endured these long periods of scarcity and difficulty, which meant that they didn't have time to apply their extraordinary productivity, their extraordinary purposefulness, all the things that make us human and capable of wonderful creative work. They spend all that energy working in the fields. Nowadays, in the United States, you've got, I think, food production, 1.4% of the employed population is involved in food production. So that's not even the whole population. Um, and they produce so much food that as much food ends up in landfill every year as it does in people's bellies. And effectively, people are eating on average, I can't remember the stats. But they said they're definitely categories of people in the United States are eating double the calories that they ought to be eating on a daily basis. The average so, is north of 3,000 for sure, and yeah. it ought to be well south of that. It, it, it's, you know, so obesity is a far bigger sign of actual systematic poverty now than malnutrition, which the Zhenguasi find hysterical. You know, they, they think yes. it's the most insane thing that people, you know, poor people are fat, they say. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, there's this extraordinary shift in our productivity. And, you know, we just haven't caught up with it psychologically yet. So I don't know what the future is going to be like in terms of how tech will, where tech will take us. But I know what I'd like it to be like. I know that I certainly wouldn't like to, you know, I certainly wouldn't like my grandchildren to be sitting and going like, well, you know, Grandpa and his generation really screwed it up, didn't they? You know, while they're sort of gnawing and gnawing on the bones of, I don't know, <laughs> the neighbours or something. I mean, it's, it's, 
you know, I think that we in this obvious, you know, there's a question of what we should do rather than what will happen. And I think what we should do is now that we understand the consequences of our action, I think there's a, a real argument in favor of being, well, an urgent argument in favor of actually putting sustainability at the front and center of our lives. Well, part and parcel, when we talk about the future, the the concept of um, guaranteed income comes from people like yourself very quickly as well. That's something else that I'm still struggling with a little bit. It's nothing to do with my politics. It's just, uh, you know, we know that that still plays as um, a laughable fantasy, if not a dystopian one to the vast majority of people who are neither far left wing, at least in the US or under the age of 30. And yet I get the impression that you see that as a sort of um, inevitability. Why should I see it the same way? Well, it's it's interesting. Again, I don't see it as an inevitability. I think it's a smart thing to try out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as I say, people always in these interviews, they say, what should we do? And I say, I don't know. We should experiment. Mm-hmm. We know what the problems are. We don't know what the solutions are quite yet. And the way you find solutions is you approach it like an engineer. You say, well, how am I going to do this? You experiment. You try one particular method and another. And I think there are a whole series of different things we could try. Now, let's take the United States, for example, where you have this kind of hallowed notion of work, which is very much part of the American dream. And, you know, this is the nation of self-made people. You know, if you graft hard enough, you can achieve whatever your ambitions are. But the truth is, you know, it's been a long time that actually people have recognized that the basis of privilege for, you know, to use a sort of word in the political vernacular at the moment, actually tends to take other forms, you know, and the principal form of privilege in America at the moment, as it is here in the United Kingdom and many other places, is actually just access to capital. If your parents are wealthy enough to send you to college, or you don't have to worry about what food's coming on your plate, so on, you're actually likely, your chances of success in life are infinitely, infinitely improved down the line. Um, so this whole, you know, there's we we use this narrative of we can all make it, we can all work to it, but we actually know that really, you know, the decks are stacked against some people in some ways, um, and we also know that ever since our economy became more automated, it's become more capital intensive. In other words, access to money has become a much bigger arbiter. So really, since the 1980s, you've had this sort of great split between incomes. Um, and real wages for most people and the very wealthy, the top 5%. And bizarrely, actually, you've had things like college fees tracking the rise in income for the top 5% um, and stripping below, (laughs) leaving those at the bottom, leaving those at the bottom somewhat left out. Um, Now, I think what happens when you end up with such wealth, you know, what we've had ever since agriculture is during the agricultural era, there used to be a real sense that, you know, because most of the work people did was to produce the energy they needed to survive. And so there was almost a sort of one-to-one relationship between effort and reward. It was a very clear correspondence. If you dug in that field and worked nine to five and did the extra hours to make sure that your fences were secure and the beasts weren't going to come in at night and so on and so forth, the chances of you having food on your table for the next year were very real. It was a measurable, marketable difference. Now our economy is so productive that actually we all have food on our table one way or another. And as I said, poor often have um, more food on their table or less healthy food than, than 
others. And so effectively the dynamics, the ability of needing, you know, the relationship between work and reward has been so completely distorted. Um, and we have this hugely wealthy society where so much wealth is accumulating in a very small number of hands at the moment. And, you know, mostly some of those hands do choose to spend that wealth very generously. Um, but there are others, of course, who, who don't. And so we end up with this extraordinary inequality. So really since, I think, 1980, you know, where you've had this huge surge in total wealth on Earth, um, largely as a result of total capital, you could call it, largely as a result from the development of this vast new technological industries around computing. And yet 50% of that wealth has gathered in the hands of 1% of the global population whereas the rest have seen very little in terms of measurable rewards from that. And we have the challenge that's facing us of saying, how do we equitably distribute this extraordinary rewards that we've won for ourselves? And the reason, again, for that is it's, a, it's not to do with some sort of ideological sense, it's to do with, you know, going back to what we talked about with hunter-gatherers and jealousy. We are, as a species, programmed. You know, it's not programmed. You know, our evolution has made us irritated when the guy next to us is a lot more than we do, or we feel we're being hard done by. That's a far bigger agent for action than, you know, anything else. And so the risk is that you produce unstable societies when they're grossly unequal. That is the fundamental problem, is you produce societies where every 50 or 60 years people say to hell with it, and they stick barricades in the street and they whip up guillotines and nooses. And, you know, these are these, are these kind of great societal moments that sort of changes. And this is what we hope democracy gets around by letting us vote in entirely new ways of doing things and regimes. But yeah, it's a, it's a challenge for us in the future how we do that. To avoid our generation's let the meat cake moment, essentially. Yes, effectively. We might be, we might be at it. Yeah, let the, let, it would probably be let them drink Starbucks now, I think. <laughs> You're probably right. <laughs> So let's just assume for the sake of conversation that the vast wealth that the world produces is somewhat equitably distributed and we know then that there is there is more than enough to go around yes. that is being made divided by the number of mouths. Although as you point out in, in the book, there's the paradox that the more mouths we are able to feed, the more mouths we are able to make. And therefore, we're almost bound always to find this new equilibrium of having almost but not quite enough. Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, so this is the, you know, it's what they call the Malthusian trap, which is that, you know, historically, you know, when Robert Malthus, the early economist, wrote this in the 1750s, it was actually a very clear depiction of all the way history of agriculture, where you'd have productive periods, great productivity compared to hunting and gathering, population growth, and then a collapse, a disaster, because the crops failed and so on. But it continued on this upward trend all the time. Um, and Malthus was right pretty much for all of history from the beginning of agriculture up until when he lived. But interestingly, this phenomenon that we're having, and it's, I suppose, far more conspicuous in Europe, is that populations have tended to decline in proportion to the level of material development and prosperity. 
So, for example, you're dealing in places like, in particular, Scandinavia, Northern Europe. You're actually dealing with a net population decline. You're dealing with, in Britain, for example, the one of the great ironies of Brexit, one of the many sort of contradictions flapping around in the world, is Britain depends on immigration for its economic growth because its indigenous population is static. Um, so populations tend to, our behavior, because children tend to become costs in the world, the modern world, they become something that eats into our budget. In the agricultural world, where a lot of our, I suppose, our ideas about big families come from, children were assets. They were working assets. They were, you know, so again, if I think back to, you know, Namibia, and I think to my Kavango neighbors in Bushmanland in Namibia, and there to have 11 children was not unusual. You expected three or four of them to die in their youth, but then you really hoped that there'd be several who would help you keep the farm going and chase those damn elephants out of the Mahangu fields late at night. Um, and of course, in the city in Namibia as well, when people have been urbanized, it changes completely. Then they have one or two kids and kids become a cost. They become a net thing. They become almost like a sort of privilege, a pleasure to have. Um, and so I think there's this natural shift that happens. And again, I think it's something that people seem to get to organically. And as I say, in the evidence in certainly in Northern Europe is that it does happen fairly organically, that people calm down and they produce fewer children, certainly because it's just expensive and complicated to have them. And the evidence as well from also massive, you know, urban centers in developing country is very much the same thing. When people are urbanized, they have fewer children because children become... As much as they are a pleasure, they also become a cost and a liability rather than in farming cultures where people accepted the death of a child much easier quite often. But children were also viewed as assets. They were things that did work. A final question, and this is the um, I'll ask you to be wildly speculative here. If it somehow turns out that our vast wealth is shared somewhat equally and we all don't need to work or, or barely need to work, then we start to find out a, a really interesting question about humankind. What is the actual role of work in our psyche? Another way of saying that is, what do we do when we don't have to do anything. I suspect a person like yourself might keep on going as you're going because you're doing what you need to do to survive, but also you're doing what you what you love to do. There are plenty of people who I, I, I would imagine, I, I sad to say that less than 50% of humankind gets to do something they would choose to do. So in your experience with people who have some choice in that matter, if you were to try to take your experience in Namibia and transpose it onto the Western world in which we all live, what would or will we do if we encounter such a future? Well, this is the, you know, there's this wonderful idea that somehow if we have nothing, you know, if we don't have to work for a living to basically feed ourselves and do all the basic things that we'll end up being complete layabouts. We, we have evolved to be this extraordinarily purposeful, intelligent species. We get bored and listless. You know, this, you know, you go, we talked earlier, go to Belize or Cancun, after three weeks of basically sitting doing nothing on the beach, you're going to be bored out of your mind. You're going to want to do something. We certainly all experienced that in lockdown recently in the UK. I mean, it was actually astonishing. The first full nationwide lockdown. After a couple of weeks, you couldn't get flour for love or money because the country had turned into a nation of bloody home bakers. You know, everybody was proofing sourdough. People want to be busy and engaged. That is what we have evolved to be. And, 
you know, I think what we have to do is begin to adjust to the fact that actually once our basic needs are met, we have this extraordinary capacity to let people focus on what it is that they want to do. And often enough, that stuff is valuable to everybody. You know, so I'm sitting here in Cambridge and I look out the window over there and I see Addenbrooke's Hospital and the Research Centre. I see actually the headquarters of AstraZeneca from my window, um, you know, producing the second-rate British vaccine. I'll take it. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take (laughs) it as well. But nevertheless, the truth is all the people, you know, so all the people who work in that space and in the university, all doing it because they care about what they're doing. And generally, I think that people, when they care about what they're doing, whether it's to be, you know, something like somebody designing vaccines or something far, you know, far more run of the mill, whether it's somebody who gets great joy out of being a fitness instructor or a cook um, or creative, people tend to do really useful things. And my suspicion is, is that, you know, in a world where basically we all our needs are basically met. It gives everybody an opportunity to thrive. Now, some people's vision of thriving may be different to others. And somebody may, you know, and God bless them if they can manage it, sit on the sofa and pick their nose and play Xbox for the rest of their lives and be happy doing it. I couldn't do that. But I suspect that in a world where everybody has the opportunity and power to do what they want, and I actually think in some ways we're getting close to it. And I think we're closer than we think because people are making decisions like yourself um, about doing work that you, you know, trying to find work you'd love rather than learning to love the work you find. And uh, I think that the world would be a better place for it. And I think we certainly wouldn't be deprived. People would say, you know, capitalism, the, the wealth motive is what inspires us to produce great new things. I don't think it is. I think wealth comes in many different forms. Um, and I think recognition, certainly, you know, as a writer of books, you know, it would be nice if I earned a few pennies from the book. But actually, what I really crave is a good review. <laughs> you know? well, that, and at the same time, we lose so many of our great minds, perhaps a majority of our great minds in our current society are become lawyers, go and work on Wall Absolutely. Street and produce quite literally nothing. Yes, absolutely. They do. It's, it's, you know, we live in a society which rewards and which culturally iconifies wealth. And so we pay our brightest and our best to become derivatives traders, corporate lawyers and so on, rather than rather than doing what is really useful. So I, I, you know, and I use myself very much as an example. I mean, I did after the birth of my first child, I I went from being, uh, you know, somebody working in the desert on land rights and human rights issues mainly to working for one of the world's biggest, most evil mining companies in at least the popular imagination. I was doing very good things with them, I have to say. But, um, you know, I did have this sort of corporate adventure because I felt this was what was necessary. Um, And very happily, after seven years doing that, um, I left and returned to anthropology and working with and writing things like these books. But it is a, it is a, it is unfortunate truth that, you know, many people who, who work in vocational jobs at the moment feel that they're under-awarded and under-appreciated um, and that the society on the whole doesn't support them. Um, and this is particularly important for things like now we think about nursing and medicine and, of course, things like teaching for our kids. Well, the book 
the scope is is vast, but it is understandable. So congratulations on this massive undertaking of yours. I'm going to get the title right now for the American listeners. It is called Work, A Deep History from the Stone Age to the Age of Robots. Thank you so much for your time, James Sisman. Thank you. 